Yes, well, I do not have kids, so that has not factored in. <laughs> <laughs> I've had... <laughs> Son of a uh, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, I've had, uh, you know, uh, other things going on in, in life, other ups and downs, but uh, but that has not been a factor. And I think the, the writing has gone along at a, at a pretty steady pace or my usual pace, which is glacially slow, but, <laughs> but happening. Sure. So... Uh, you know, I, it didn't actually kind of affect the rate of, uh, of writing or of output Good for me. Um, how about you? Oh, it's been a fucking mess. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's, uh, there's a, um, uh, there's a, a Kurt Vonnegut short story called Harrison Bergeron that um, oh, liber yeah. libertarians love to cite it. Um, but I, for me, the, the the big takeaway from that uh, story, which is about uh, a dystopian future in which all you know human differences are equalized through um, uh, government enforced handicaps and the the people of above average intelligence have to wear helmets that make very loud noises in their ears all the time, <laughs> right. all the time. And that to me is just, uh, just a, a very apt metaphor for uh, having children. Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts, a podcast about poetry and other intractable problems. This week, I have a conversation for you um, with Austin Allen. Uh, Austin is the author of Pleasures of the Game, uh, winner of the 11th annual Anthony Hecht Award, uh, uh, Anthony Hecht Prize, published by Wayweiser Press. It's really slender and strong uh, poetry collection from a few years ago. Uh, he is also, he's the author of, you know, numerous uh, critical essays, and uh, he is going to be teaching a class and uh, leading a panel at the 2022 Poetry by the Sea Conference. Um, <laughs> there was a bit of a delay. It was supposed to happen a year ago, and it will be happening a year from now, but uh, he's teaching a class on mystery, and it sounds like a pretty good one if you are the conference-going type. So Austin brought in for us a uh, an interesting piece of writing. It's a, an, an essay that has a bit of a reputation called The Two Cultures by C.P. Snow. It's from uh, about 70 years ago, but it has has some, I think, some relevance still today. The conversation ended up going all over. We talked about this particular essay. We talked about uh, his writing process. We talked about stupid Twitter fights uh, and uh, science and poetry from a number of different angles. Um, he is a very smart and charming guy. Oh, at, at the end, I'm going to read a little poem and say a word or two about it. And uh, I'll just say now so I can sort of speed up the ending a little bit more when we get there. If you have a chance, do go to Apple Podcasts and give the show a rating 
a review, or send a note to me at sleericketts at gmail.com. That's S-L-E-E-R-I-C-K-E-T-S at gmail.com. Or just recommend the show to somebody you think might like it. All right, enough of that bullshit. Let's get to the fucking show. This was originally a uh, an essay that appeared in the New Statesman, and then it uh, he expanded it uh, a couple years after that, um, three years I guess later, in the 1959 Reed Lecture at the University of Cambridge. Um, C.P. Snow was a an English chemist and novelist um, who is now probably best known for this essay or this this piece. So the the two cultures is the first section of a, of this lecture, um, and it's by far the the most well known. It was then published as this this lecture was published as a standalone book, um, and became a big sensation um, both in the U.S. and in the UK, uh, what was it that made you want to bring this in to, uh, to discuss further? Yeah, so um, I know this uh, essay or this lecture as a, just a touchstone that gets referred to a lot anytime that, or that I've seen often referred to um, whenever there is some sort of perceived gulf or clash between the worlds of the sciences uh, and the humanities. And so I, I can't pretend to be very familiar with C.P. Snow's work beyond this lecture. I mean, it is the most, most famous thing he, he did and the two cultures has been this kind of phrase that's, that's lived on and gets referred to and quoted. Uh, but the original text is fascinating. You know, it, it, there are aspects of it that I strongly agree with. There are uh, aspects that are simply dated um, you know, th that have dated since the 50s. And, and then there are aspects that se still seem fresh. There are aspects that I uh, am uncertain about or disagree with a little bit. Uh, but he is, you know, himself this figure who straddled both worlds as both a, a novelist and a, a chemist. And I had always, um, you know, heard of this essay. I, I had heard it referred to uh, before I first read it. I had uh, heard of it being referred to as this kind of even-handed uh, essay that, that was really just trying to make peace between STEM and the humanities and-, and Not get even two, remotely. Yeah, get the, two, <laughs> get the two spheres to talk to each other a little bit more. And, the, and then, you know, whenever I first read this, I, I was surprised to, um, to find that it wasn't so even-handed. It comes down much harder on the, on the humanities folks. Uh, who he, you know, mocks for calling themselves the intellectuals as if other forms of uh, intellectual life did not exist. So, the, you know, the, the, the bias of it was interesting to me, as well as the specific claims that it makes. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll read a couple excerpts just to give people a sense of a sense of it. Um, uh, this is just from the very beginning. Um, and I'll just say uh, he... <laughs> He mentions off offhand a uh, he makes an offhand re reference to race and class that certainly I would say as you said you know dates it um, as, as well as kind of identifying and and in the same breath dismissing uh, a problem that maybe we we've come to be more concerned with today, but um, so this is just the third paragraph. There have been plenty of days when I have spent the working hours with scientists and then gone off at night with some literary colleagues. 
I mean that literally. I'm not sure why that would be in question. I have had, of course, intimate friends among both scientists and writers. It was through living among these groups and much more, I think, through moving regularly from one to the other and back again that I got occupied with the problem of what, long before I put it on paper, I christened to myself as the two cultures. For constantly, I felt I was moving among two groups, comparable in intelligence, identical in race, not grossly different in social origin, earning about the same incomes, who had almost ceased to communicate at all, who in intellectual, moral, and psychological climate had so little in common that instead of going from Burlington House or South Kensington to Chelsea, one might have crossed an ocean. And those uh, references don't make a whole lot of sense to us today or maybe or, or on this side of the Atlantic and maybe today, but I think it's, it's pretty clear what he um, what he intends. Uh, so uh, he's he identifies here these two groups as scientists and literary colleagues. And it does seem like there's, there's, there's already a little bit of narrowing that he's with the scientists. He does seem as he talks later to be a little broader in his, he, he seems to be including a few more categories of scientists there than among the literary colleagues, which really seems to be uh, literary academics. Um, right. specifically. Um, and then, and then, and there's, I, you know, I, I was not able to find um, uh, F.R. Levis uh, in 1962 published a famous response to this in The Spectator that uh, apparently, I, I was not able to get hold of it, but apparently it was just, um, just vicious and extremely personal. <laughs> and he, he attacks not just, you know, the, the argument here, but uh, also, you know, Snow's like literary accomplishment and his intelligence. And apparently the, the, the kind of the intellectual establishment um, leapt to Snow's defense. But there was a, um, in a kind of a later summary of the whole controversy that I found by the also politically uh, very dubious Roger Kimball, um, he, he observes, and I think this is, this is sort of um, where we see the beginning of this distinction, that Snow does seem to speak very, in a very slippery way about literary intellectuals. And then later he seems to lump that into this, he seems to use that as, as an equivalent term to what he calls the traditional culture. Yes. It's become uh, uh, the same. Yeah, I had been using the word uh, humanities, but in fact, um, as you say, where, whereas Snow, uh, when he's talking about scientists, he, he is talking about a range of the, of the sciences. Um, when, he, when he's talking about uh, the humanists, he, he really is concerned almost solely with literary intellectuals, which, <laughs> which is one sort of imbalance. And, you know, for example, he never, he never brings up historians. Right, right. Uh, in, in the, <laughs> <laughs> who might feel slighted. Yeah. Who might feel slighted or, or whose work he might think of as more grounded in hard fact or, <laughs> yeah. or what have you. So, so it, he's really pitting literature against science. Yeah. Yeah. He's also, I mean, he also totally neglects, I mean, and understandably, because it, it would be a shaky ground, but he totally neglects uh, psychiatry, which was in mm -hmm. like, I mean, this was a this is a period of like high fantasy in like right. academic psychiatry. I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, he's really talking pretty much about the hard, hard sciences and and writers, which is <laughs> which is sort of. I mean, it's a little bit. A lot of this, a lot of this seems to take place at a lot of this. A lot of the the, um, the anecdotes that make up the meat of this essay take place at uh, dinner parties or or at um, uh, yes. cock, cock, you know cocktail affairs. Um, 
Yes, so it's he, not a very scientific sample of no, no, it's <laughs> the a very, problem at hand. It's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very literary treatment. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he says here. Um, uh, he, he gives basically he sort of cruelly quit quizzes the 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 um the English majors the uh, the you know the English professors um uh, uh he, this is the these literary types um dismiss scientists as ignorant specialists yet their own ignorance and their own specialization is just a startling a good many times I have been present at gatherings of people who by the standards of the traditional culture are thought highly educated and who have with considerable gusto been expressing their incredulity at the at the illiteracy of scientists. Once or twice I have been provoked and have asked the company how many of them could describe the second law of thermodynamics. The response was cold, it was also negative. Yet I was asking something which is about the scientific equivalent of have you read a work of Shakespeare's? I read that and then broke out into a sweat. I always, I always have sort of a vague knowledge of the three laws of thermodynamics being like energy is conserved, entropy increases yeah. and something. But yeah, I felt like it was, it was a little unfair. Like I want to say like, have you read a work of Shakespeare's might be equivalent to like, have you read, like, I, have you ever known the second law of thermodynamics? Like, have you, have you no, once I, encountered it and then forgotten it 20 times? I mean, I, I first encountered this uh, lecture, however many years ago, and that is the most memorable part. And, and every time I think of and go back to this lecture, I mean, I have to look up the laws of thermodynamics right. again. And I, I have a, a terror of some, you know, scientists oh, quizzing me at a party someday. Right. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Second I mean, law. And I'll, I'll, I, of course, we'll, we'll blank on it. I mean, some, some of this felt like a little bit like a, a gotcha. But what would you say about how this split, at least as he sees it or articulates it, compares to where we are today? where intellectual culture is today. Yeah, I mean, I, I think some of those kinds of observations, however fair or unfair, do still have some truth to them. And in fact, you know, one, one personal touchstone for me with, with this essay, which is kind of coming from the other side of it, is um, I, I think this would have been about five or six years ago. I was hanging out uh, with a friend of mine from college who uh, majored in physics and went on to uh, do graduate work in, in physics and then transitioned into uh, another uh, career slightly outside um, the sciences. But he that, that was his background uh, and a, a good friend. And we were just catching up and asking each other you know, what we were working on. And he told me about his work, which I probably did not understand <laughs> a word of. <laughs> and, I told, and I told him that I was uh, writing uh, at the time, an essay on Auden, and uh, he, an extremely, you know, you know brilliant, well-educated guy, asked, "Who's Auden? You know, wh yeah. wh what? It, what is that?" And that, you know, that those kind of moments um, do put things in perspective, because, as you know, for me, Auden is a, a huge, you know, um, model, and and you know, for every poet is a. Um, is one of the greats and uh, his work to me could not be more relevant, you know, to, to the wider world, but I, I'm aware and I was made aware in that moment that, <laughs> that not everyone feels that way or, or is as, you know, oriented toward that kind of study and, and, uh, and that kind of reading. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I don't doubt that uh, whatever he was working on at the time was relevant to my world <laughs> in many ways that I would be better off for knowing. But that that was a that was a two cultures moment, you know, and oh, yeah. and so and so it it interests me in terms of um, you know the, the it, it's easy to uh, nitpick snow in various ways, um, 
and uh, you know, talk about how that essay has dated, but there is a core truth that I think I do agree with, which is that you know, specialization makes it harder and harder as the years go by for anyone to really know, you know intellectual fields outside their, their specialty in a, in, a, in a deep, deep way. But um, you know, the sciences and, and the humanities would benefit in many ways from bridging that gulf a little bit more and find, finding ways to, to talk to each other more as, as Snow puts it. Yeah, I, I um, no, I, I think part of what gives him the ability to make this a kind of a, make this an argument about two distinct cultures rather than an argument about specialization in academia is that he, is that conflation he makes between literary intellectuals and the traditional culture. The distinction he makes um, pretty sharply is uh, the scientists are the, are the have the future and the the literary types have the past. Yes. Um, yeah, there, there's a, a couple of quotes I'll just read quickly here. Please, it, yeah, yeah. You know, he does put it in a very pithy way. Uh, you know, he, he, he is talking about um, how these two realms could interact more, more fruitfully. Um, and he says the clashing point of two subjects, two disciplines, two cultures of two galaxies, so far as that goes, ought to produce creative chances. Uh, in the history of mental activity, that has been where some of the breakthroughs came. The chances are there now, but they are there as it were in a vacuum because those in the two cultures can't talk to each other. It's bizarre how very little of 20th century science has been assimilated into 20th century art. And then a little bit down, he's in the essay, he says, 30 years ago, the cultures, of course, he's talking in you know, 1959, 30 years ago, the cultures had long ceased to speak to each other, but at least they managed a kind of frozen smile across the gulf. Now the politeness has gone and they just make faces. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but he also, he says in there, um, now and then one used to find poets conscientiously using scientific expressions and getting them wrong. And he, he's, you know, he cites a couple examples and he says, well, that's, that's not really what science should be doing for art. But it isn't really clear exactly what the most fruitful version of that relationship would look like, I mean, other than maybe like Tom Stoppard or, mm. um, you know, I think you, you, you shared a couple of other pieces um, by Amit Majmadar, um, who's a uh, radiologist, a medical doctor, um, and uh, as well as a very, very accomplished poet. And he um, wrote in this piece, Kepler's Snowflake that appeared in the Kenyan Review about uh, a kind of a, a poetic flight of fancy that Johannes Kepler wrote about the snowflake and the structure of the snowflake, which had, you know, the, the reasons for which had not been discovered at that time. And, um, uh, and Majmundar makes, I think, a kind of a meaningful um, observation about uh, the way in which artistic ways of thinking can help science. Uh, he says, late in the treatise, Kepler ponders snowflakes by pondering the frosty window above a hot, hot bath. This is another visual metaphor, another example of poetic thinking. Metaphor to a mind like this is not a literary device or stylistic frill. The metaphor is the thought not some ornament on that thought's expression, the gift itself, not the bow on top. A law of physics doesn't ornament the universe, it governs the universe. I do take that to heart that there's something about metaphorical thinking or even you know the 
the the uh, famous like shower thoughts where you're you kind of you're you're zoning out in the shower when the thought comes to you, which to me like the I guess like the 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 original instance of that has to be Archimedes in the bathtub, right? Yeah, yeah. Discovering uh, um, displacement. Um, so I I'm I fear <laughs> I fear coming from Ashwater that that the that it may be that that um, poetic ways of thinking can really help science. Um, it certainly can help scientific writers. I mean, you, you read Darwin, and he's a he's a he's a marvelous stylist. His his grandfather, I think, was a was like a, an accomplished poet. Um, I want to say that's right. Yeah. Uh, that with, and without that, it, I mean, his his work might have had the, the scientific impact it had, but it, it certainly would not have had the cultural impact. Um, it would not have been become as I think as popularly understood, but it's not clear to me. I mean, it seems to me like there is something that scientists can take from, you know, to put it in uh, cliche terms of thinking outside the box that it, whereas with poetry or with art, it may be that science really is just sort of the ornament. Um, I'm not sure what the best version of that would be other than like getting the terms right and not offending CP Snow in that way. Yeah. It, it, it can't hurt for poets to to get their terms <laughs> right <laughs> to use words right. correctly. I mean that's a start. Uh, although you know sometimes fruitful things can come from from misusing words, I suppose. But I, I, I do think you know when I think about practical applications for what Snow is talking about, I mean certainly a, a meeting point between these two spheres is just the common sphere of language and, yeah. and politics. Um, so you know this would be. This is, this is a problem that uh, factors into science communication, for example, um, and how scientists, uh, at, at a time when, you know, science is, is sometimes under political threat and is certainly uh, essential to solving some huge political challenges that we're facing, you know, um, learning how, you know, how better or best to, to communicate certain ideas to make them uh, relevant and accessible uh, to the public, um, that that is a possible application. On the on the other side of things, you know, for for poets or for um, literary writers uh, who are um, navigating some of that same terrain, right? Of course, literature intersects with with politics too, uh, or just in you know in terms of how literature communicates its version or versions of of the world around us you know having some sort of uh, you know um if not you know expert level proficiency uh just being conversant in you know in the sciences and keeping abreast of current scientific discoveries and language and stuff i, I think that can that can be useful to you know to poets and writers as well um, and understanding the difference too between science and pseudoscience, <laughs> you know, uh, with, right. uh, which, uh, you know, pseudoscience is in, in various forms is a huge political challenge right now, you know, and, um, and for, for poets and, and literary people who, who may need to, you know, dabble in a, in a certain kind of mystery or mysticism or, or that kind mm -hmm. of thing, you know, navigating that balance between, um, between mystery on the one hand and, and sort of pseudoscientific mysticism on the other. I mean, that, that is something I think about sometimes when I'm trying to 
yeah mystery and mystification yeah yeah you know the 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 story was that the like the romans were so obsessed with rhetoric because they wanted to make sure that their citizens were not suckers um they were that they would not be easily taken in uh that's kind of what i have in mind too and and also there's i think we're living in a, a moment um in the literary sphere where um where, where things like sub-disciplines uh, or areas of concentration like eco-poetics are, right. are becoming a, a big thing. You know, poetry, uh, I'll speak to poetry because it's, you know, the discipline I know best, yeah, but yeah. Um, poetry has this desire um, to speak to issues of ecology and climate change and that kind of thing, which is, um, I, you know, obviously, something it can and should uh, take on but having that you know that level of um, having having the ability to ground it in scientific language and thought to some extent would necessarily be be helpful for that enterprise right you know you you um you don't want i i would think you know you wouldn't want an eco poetics that's grounded you know in pure mysticism <laughs> right <laughs> or, <laughs> or or like <laughs> so, <laughs> you know it's just something i i, I think about um what yeah. how, how can poetry have those conversations meaningfully yeah i um so the 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 lecture goes on that you know the two cultures is the first section of it. the second section is um intellectuals as natural luddites which is sort of leading up to so even at the end of the um the two cultures he gets into what is seems to be his real focus for the lecture which is uh the ussr is way ahead of us when it comes to training scientists um <laughs> us being the west as he sees it um right uh and so and so we we need to catch up and we need to get over all of the the cultural obstacles we have getting getting in the way of that um but but the i think a a, a meaningful distinction he he offers in saying scientists you know care scientists have the future they have the momentum um uh, one thing he says that that seems to have changed almost not at all toward the end he says it is not only that the young scientists now feel that they are part of a culture on the rise while the other is in retreat it is also to be brutal that the young scientists know that with an indifferent degree and there i think he's, he's using indifferent to mean not from cambridge or oxford um <laughs> they'll, they'll get a comfortable job while their contemporaries and counterparts in English or history will be lucky to earn 60% as much. That I think is to- totally uh, still applicable. It's just maybe more, yeah. more, more extreme uh, today. <laughs> yeah, that part was kind of a dagger in the heart. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Uh, he, but he, um, uh, he says that, that basically like by being existentialist, by being kind of crepuscular Eliotic types, by, by looking to the past rather than the future, uh, the um, and and being so concerned with the what what he refers to as the condition of man, um, it really like tr- truly like the the absurdist existential condition of man. Um, uh, literary types are neglecting not just science science as a as a set of intellectual possibilities, but also sort of their the needs of their fellow man. That he says that what what science the, where science has a a moral advantage. Um, is that it's, it's, you know, practical science. Again, there's conflation here is there's conflation in some of the criticism of this as well. Like either, either fixates on practical science or on pure science without recognizing that they really both are kind of in, in play. 
But right, insofar right. as insofar as he's concerned with practical science, you know, the advantage that has is that it's all about how to do things. Um, mm -hmm. And he says that basically th there's a there's a great need for practical science just for the sake of eliminating world poverty, um, right. and and it, and industrializing uh, the the at the time un, you know not yet industrialized world. And this is this is um, you know this is really a humanitarian mission. And so I, I do wonder if if part of the criticism amounts to the literary or the, you know, the humanities, you know, however we want to slice it, the, the, this one culture is navel gazing, is concerned with not necessarily Albert Camus anymore, but maybe other uh, sort of um, uh, sort of small closed private concerns there's there are there is a great need for and great possibility on a global scale for things that you know practical science might have answers to and i think today i mean poverty continues to be a problem uh though though some of the some of the questions he's addressing here are, are no longer quite as relevant but i think you know climate change is obviously one example of a major global need and uh i wonder if some of the criticism of literary types or humanities types as being navel gazing maybe in different ways still applies yeah i mean it's a in all these things you're, you're making huge generalizations right and of it, course yeah no so certainly <laughs> certainly is i mean I, I i certainly think there are um literary individual literary figures and and maybe even whole branches of uh contemporary literature to to which uh Snow's criticism might apply. You know, certainly there is navel gazing <laughs> literature out there, um, and or, or uh, literature that is very insularly focused on one country or, or culture. You know, American literature that doesn't look outside American borders, that that kind of thing. Um, and certainly at, at the at the time there was too. I, I do wonder sometimes how much this essay was. A response to T.S. Eliot because Eliot was such a major figure at that time, and he does bring up Eliot once in the essay as a as what he calls an archetypal figure of the issues that he's talking about. So he may have that kind of writer in mind. Um, you know, uh, Eliot then a, a figure of you know a huge you know world prominence and and uh, uh, huge stature as both a poet and, and a critic and, and that kind of thing, uh, although a very controversial one then is now. Um, he may be thinking of a, a kind of archetypal brooding Eliotic figure who is, you know, simply mourning, <laughs> mourning a cultural uh, past, mourning the, uh, some kind of internal death of the soul. I mean, I'm caricaturing Eliot's poetry, <laughs> no, but uh, but he, he, he may have that kind of poet in mind, but I don't think uh, then or now that exhausts the, the whole scope of, of uh, poetry or literature. I mean, at any one time, people are writing with all, all sorts of different focuses. And, he, you know, even at the time there, he could have, um, if he were presenting the case a little more fairly, I think he could have found figures who were looking, you know, who, who were very politically aligned with him, very aligned with his, you know, concerns and, um, which, which are laudable, you know, I, I, I think yeah. it, the, you know, the humanitarian intent is there in, in the lecture. Right? And I think he's sincere about that. Um, and he's sincere about wanting um, science to be, you know, to lead the charge in, in solving some of these global inequities and global problems. And so I, I, I think his, his goals are, are laudable, but he does in the process, uh, 
you know, caricature the literary yeah. arts a little bit. There's a kind of, um, there's a, I feel like there's a, there's an intellectual equivalent to the, the old, uh, bellicose chauvinist, you know, argument, well, you're, you're an able-bodied young man. Why are you not fighting for your country? There's a kind of a, mm -hmm. an intellectual, like, well, you're a smart guy. Yeah. Why are you not applying that intelligence to something that, that, that matters? Um, right. It, you know, the, the, uh, whether or not people devoting themselves to literary criticism or critical theory or poetry or whatever field of the humanities today would be capable of helping design better solar panels or not. Um, you know, I do think there's, I, I mean, I, I was talking to uh, Jonathan Farmer about this the other day. I, I, I do sometimes wonder about things like, um, you know, there's a significant number of physics PhDs working on Wall Street mm -hmm. because based on, you know, the kind of the intellectual demands, like that's where they can make <laughs> the most money. And I, you know, uh, the quants, right. The quants, you know, and so part of me does feel like, well, well, maybe you could do something else with that. I mean, but, but again, like I don't have the same feeling toward like, chess grandmasters who like definitely could do something more more useful with their right. of course like they would probably have had to have made a different life choice at the age of six um so it's <laughs> a little it's a little different this i feel like this came up and was uh there was like a period where this was a big hot public topic of, of debate during obama's administration in uh questions of um encouraging stem uh learning uh, I, and I don't, I, I was only semi aware of all the particulars of that, but then I know that there was a point at which it took a weird turn and became uh, STEM standing, of course, for uh, science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, and these being subjects that, that it, uh, it was, I think, it, it, under Obama, the, the claim was we needed, to, we needed more people to major in these subjects so that we could continue to compete with China, whereas you know Snow is saying we need to compete with the USSR. Um, right. uh, and then at some point that acronym got expanded to STEAM, which included the arts and seemed oh, just right. completely to defeat the purpose of the whole, <laughs> the whole project. And again, I think shortly after that it, it, it collapsed into a non- Well, okay, you, you should just study everything. Right, yeah, never mind. So uh, you, as I said, you, you brought in a couple of um, uh, essays by Amit Bajwadar, um, He's also, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a, a um, an accomplished poet and prolific poet. I, I think I I want to say it was in it was an interview or somewhere that I read that he's a little bit like Joyce Carol Oates that he's he's somebody who like has to be writing all the time. Like he can't, maniac. Yeah, I think or something like that. Like he can't like he he, he revi apparently he revises very little, which is hard to believe. Uh, because like he just can't slow down enough to stop uh I, th I think he has said uh that he uh, in in interviews somewhere that he doesn't uh that he doesn't revise that much i i never know how to take those claims when, when right <laughs> uh, a, a poet makes them i i mean his, much of his work seems extremely polished to me but if he if he's doing that on the first first go you know more power to him yeah. <laughs> fuck you amit mashmadar yeah um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I, um, but uh, what did, did you, do you want to say a word about either of these? This Kepler snowflake was one of them and then the brains of animals um, uh, was the other. Yeah, I just think they're, they're very good examples of how 
from the literary side, you know, the, the two cultures, if we're staying with Snow's, you know, paradigm can, can talk to each other um, because, you know, he, Majmudar has the, uh, the range to uh, talk knowledgeably uh, about, um, about science. Of, of course, he's not, you know, uh, a specialist in every area of science that, that comes up in these essays, but he's um, certainly con conversant enough and interested enough in finding meeting points between science and the humanities to, uh, to write some really compelling and, and excellent uh, criticism um, about these subjects, about Kepler and uh, about the brains of animals, which he you know, kind of wonderfully connects to a passage of Walt Whitman and, and you know, and uh, you know, I would encourage anyone uh, to check out these essays and and just see that this is a way that it that it can be done. That uh, science and and uh, whether whether it's biology, whether it's you know ecology, whether it's astronomy. In the case of uh, Kepler, how how without necessarily being a specialist in those disciplines, you know, a, a real um, intellectual curiosity about those disciplines and a, and a willingness to uh, learn about them and and uh, you know, as in the case of Kepler, go back and read the original source materials or, or, or Darwin or whoever it may be, um, can really be fruitful for, for poets and for literary writers. I mean, I think the, the Kepler piece makes a particularly strong case for the, um, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a substantially longer piece, but it makes a particularly strong case for uh, the, the fruitful marriage of science and literature. Um, though I, I was also, there was, um, so Mashmadar is, is additionally, and I don't know how much this is still the case, but he, so he somewhat recently did a, I don't know that it was a translation of the Bhagavad Gita, but it was a treatment of the Bhagavad Gita of some kind. Um, I think it was billed as a, as a full uh, translation. Maybe I, it was, okay. I, I read something yeah. that, yeah. Um, and then, and he's, you know, and at least uh, some of his other- God, God song, is that right? Oh okay, yeah, right. Okay, right, which is the Bhagavad Gita, yeah, the song of our Lord, yeah, right, or the Lord, yeah. Or, yeah. Um, uh, he's, he certainly has written in um, uh, uh, some of his poetry about a, what seems to be a religious outlook. Um, mm -hmm. It did, it did strike me as, notable that, that you know one of the one of the lines uh toward the end of the kepler piece um kepler i think sort of wonder he's trying to he's speculating about why the snowflakes are six-sided uh and he says um kepler couldn't figure out why the snowflake had six corners but he was certain beforehand that its symmetry was divine i believe that the cause behind the six-cornered snowflake is no other than the one responsible for the regular shapes and the constant numbers that appear in plants he writes i cannot believe that this ordered shape is present by chance Centuries later, Einstein would echo this religious conviction, God does not play dice. Einstein did say, you know, the old one does not play dice. But it, it just seemed like such a weird lacuna that that was, of course, in response to quantum mechanics. And Einstein turned out to be wrong. That, I mean, the, the God, like God does very much play dice, at least in, at least in so far as he, <laughs> as he meant that. And I, I mean, this is something that Moshwater is clearly like brilliant and insanely accomplished man. Um, so I truly have, have nothing but respect for him, but it does seem like there are, may, maybe, maybe this is, this is part of the sign of his, um, uh, maybe this is part of his success, but there does seem to be at times a kind of a credulity about the poetic. Then he says, you know, here, um, 
at the end of the brains of animals one the brains of animals piece is really fascinating and it is a wonderful passage from Whitman's not my favorite but the, but the passage he ends with is really quite, mm. quite good um mm. but then his 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 conclusion is if science should ever persuade people of this biological unity that is that you know, maybe that humans are not simply superior to other animals, but that we all have these different strengths, uh, as, as it does seem, he makes a good case for that. He says, if we were ever persuaded of this, it would be a far greater benefit to the species than penicillin or cardiopulmonary bypass, a far greater benefit to the planet than the piecemeal successes of environmental activism. We will have arrived by study and reasoning at the intuitive mystical insights of poets. And to me, I mean, that's just immediately seems totally obviously false. Like, no, penicillin is far more valuable, not because it's not good to recognize, not because we aren't in some way, you know, peers to rather than masters of the orca or the elephant, but because he's way overvaluing uh, the impact of realizing something of like believing something, of like insight. I mean, poetic insight. Or, or undervaluing penicillin. Or undervaluing penicillin. <laughs> I mean, good Lord. Yeah, it's, I, I just think like the, the I mean, that's the, um, that's the, 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 both the the uselessness and the um, perennial uh, value of so much literature is that epiphanies are short-lived. You know, like we, we can yeah. always use another, you know, the dead because we're always forgetting. And we, you know, to simply to realize something is, you know, this is, this is, I mean, this, this to me is one of those moments where you almost feel like he sounds like Joe Rogan saying like, well, everyone should do mushrooms once and then the world would be fine. <laughs> like, well, that's, that's not, I do. I mean, I wonder partly here about, um, and this is where there's there to me, like one of the mysteries of the, of the snow lecture um, is in that very beginning uh, that, that early uh, little passage I quoted, there've been plenty of days when I have spent the working hours with scientists and then gone off at night with some literary colleagues I want to ask why, why, why did, what did you find in the company of your literary colleagues that made you want to go, go yeah. out at night with them? What, because yeah. they seem like uh, Philistines. I mean, they seem, they seem sort of horrible. It's like both it's like self-loathing and outward, you know, and loathing of others. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I am not familiar enough with Snow's own work as a literary man, you know, as a novelist to, uh, to say for sure, but there may be a, a kind of uh, defensive resistance to literary culture in, in Snow's essay. Uh, if that, if I understand, yeah, uh, understand you correctly, like yeah, what what was he gaining from his literary colleagues? Well, he could have done a better job of explaining mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and defending that side of things in the essay. But, yeah, but, but though I, I mean, I, I, part of me wonders that both about. So if, I mean, if I had to characterize the way literary types, especially academic literary types, think of science or look to science, setting aside things like the, the, the replication crisis and the social sciences, um, you know, I'd say that you're, you're far less likely to get literary types bad-mouthing science today. You're far more likely to get them maybe praising it or or just speaking in effusive but kind of imprecise or you know sometimes ignorant ways about it uh mis misapplying uh knowledge of it um and similarly i think like if you are the the people i know who are most cynical about literature and literary types 
are literary types. Mm. And if anything, it seems like a lot of the appeal of that, that especially writers, maybe it's, maybe it's especially poets, but like the literary types have for one another socially is commiseration. Yes, although one thing that's changed, I think, I mean, that passage jumped out at me uh, too on this you know, latest free reading because I am not sure if you got a room full of scientists together now have to conduct a thorough experiment I guess right, but yeah. you know but uh, I'm speculating here but I, I think you know scientists are certainly um, do not have the the kind of ingrained optimism about the future necessarily that uh, that Snow credits them with with having in other words that you know scientists even in their public capacity now for example climate scientists are sometimes called upon to be professional pessimists in a, in a sense, right. you know, that there is yeah, not yeah. this, and there is not this uh, sense uh, that, that I see coming out of that, that culture that we're in this heroic age where uh, all the problems of the world will be solved. And so that is, you know, a potential meeting place in that kind, that kind of, um, you know, necessary pessimism or, or at least, or realism <laughs> about, yeah. uh, about the world is a potential meeting place now. Uh, between literature and science, and and I I should say too that I think there is also a place for for optimism as well. But but I, I think that's that's something that's changed, and I don't know that uh, I don't know that scientists have uh, scientific culture now has that kind of um, that that kind of techno optimism, even if maybe parts of Silicon Valley yeah. the, you know uh, still do. Yeah, no, that, yeah, I think you're right. That is that's a that's that is a Silicon Valley. Uh, that is the real Silicon Valley place today. And I, you're right. I think like the, the um, just this past year and a half really uh, um, took a lot of the bloom off of a field like public health, which was revealed as being, mm -hmm. you know, at least equal parts science and humanity um, that they, mm -hmm. you know, that's the, there were clearly a lot of cases in which there were, you know, I think often good faith compromises, but there, there was, uh, I think a lot of a lot of medical professionals were called upon to present a a scientifically flavored argument for the public good, which wasn't always you know bracingly you know uh, impeccably scientific. For sure, and, and you know another thing that this makes me think of in terms of the optimism pessimism thing is. Uh, this is a, a little bit at an angle to what we're just talking about, but but uh, Snow's essay comes out right on the cusp of the space race, mm. right? So he's you know he's writing in the late fifties, and that was uh, you know that uh, that space race, that race to the moon, and so forth, uh, became associated with a certain kind of techno optimism during that period and scientific optimism. Um, and I, I was thinking about this in, in connection with Snow too. Um, First of all, because we now have a very different kind of space race with, you know, billionaires racing to the yeah. <laughs> to where to wherever they're racing to, uh, that I think that you know the public is extremely skeptical, <laughs> rightly rightfully yeah. skeptical about. Um, but I, you know, because that's been in the news, I was thinking back to uh, an essay I wrote a few a couple years ago for the 50th anniversary of the Apollo uh, moon landings, and it was about my essay was about the, the poetry that was written around that period of the first uh, moon landing. And I, I found out, uh, you know, in researching that, that um, first of all, 
you know, a lot of a lot of poets at the time were were quite skeptical about about the Apollo missions and about the space race in general. And uh, I I came across uh, first of all there you know there's a Mary Rufel essay that was written for the 25th anniversary of the moon landings called Poetry in the Moon, which is wonderful. And she she cites this uh, this guy who's not who's now forgotten, but uh, who uh, who complained basically um, in in a separate essay about how pessimistic poets and writers of the of the sixties were about the space race, and he basically accused them of being technophobes, being luddites, of being you know just sort of uh, anti rationalist, anti science, that that kind of thing. Um, and so one of the things I topics I, I took up in my essay was you know a, a lot of the pessimism that that. Uh, came out in the poetry that was written at the time about the moon landings was uh, would be very familiar to us now. It was basically on political grounds. A, a lot of it was was accusing um, you know the space race of being a waste of money. You know, a few years after LBJ had declared a, a war on poverty, that it was you know expensive and unnecessary. You know, Robert Hayden at the time right, writes the you know in a poem that he uh, doesn't want the the moon to turn into the white hope of communications men you know so there's this <laughs> <laughs> so there's uh there's this very familiar aspect to it you know uh, and uh and, and in a way you know if if snow were alive today you know that is that is an area where you could uh, or an instance where you could show him you know uh, a, a poetry that has uh, a, a skepticism uh, certainly a, a, a skepticism about the future and even a, a skepticism about the applications to which science was being put that has held up well. I mean, it's aged pretty well, even though, you know, I'm uh, the, you know, whatever you think of the, the Apollo missions per se, you know, we, we can at least relate in looking at the space race today to, you know, to why poets at the time were, were, were launching a kind of valid critique of how those resources were being spent and, uh, you know whether we agree or, or disagree, it, yeah. it has it has aged well in the sense that it's still very familiar to us. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not uh, when when an argument has dated, it means that it basically it finds no no more adherence except maybe among the extreme fringe of the culture, and that's you know right. by that standard, it's not dated. Uh, there, are, I mean, I hear arguments both from. Marxists and from Republicans about the about you know scrapping NASA. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you mentioned um, uh, a couple of cases of sort of public intellectuals in the in science and then in, in, in poetry making uh, making silly claims publicly. The mm -hmm. one was Richard Dawkins. One was Dan. I can't, never know how to say his name. Chasen, Kyason, C H I A S S O N. I think it's Kyason. Kyason um, about the about UFOs. I couldn't. I I still can't understand what this is even saying. This is in response to the the U.S. military report on UFOs. Yeah. This is the UFO report can't rule out alien activity. It would be very easy to rule out alien activity, find literally literally any explanation other than alien activity, attribute it to any known or conceivable technology, but it doesn't since it can't. What? This was... Uh, yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> he has been uh, posting about this and, and not making uh, sweeping or ridiculous claims that, that these are, that UFOs are extraterrestrial in origin or anything like that, but he, um, 
he's very excited about these, you know, as a lot of people are about um, the, the, the UFO issue has come back into the, mm-hmm. into the public uh, dialogue. And, and he seems uh, in some other uh, post that is not that one, I, I, he seemed to be suggesting that the science has turned on UFOs. And mm-hmm. I wasn't sure, you know, what he meant, <laughs> what he right. meant uh, by that, because, you know, it, 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 UFOs, you know, we, we have, uh, a couple of grainy videos. We have a few, you know, right. members of the military and in, in this recent, um, I think it was a 60 minutes piece, you know, a, a few members of the military seen, saying they've seen certain things, but we don't have anything UFO wise that has been tested or verified, or, I mean, we, <laughs> we, no. it, we it's certainly nothing that would substantiate, you know, uh, the idea that, that UFOs are extraterrestrial in, in origin. So, th- so that was just an example of, of someone getting, uh, excited and maybe getting a little bit over out ahead of themselves in terms of what the science has shown about something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that does, that does make sense. Um, And it, I think um, you, you, you sent along a William Blake poem about Mm -hmm. uh, uh, here, Macon, Macon, Voltaire, Rousseau. And I thought also of Edgar Allan Poe's sonnet to science. Um, Yeah. Or the I recently re, uh, reread the Snow Queen with my daughter, and I had realized like the Snow Queen is a is a big anti science fable. Oh, okay, <laughs> uh, it's it's all I have about not, not read it recently. Yeah, it's all about how uh, literally demons put little shards of glass in the eyes of children that made them turn cold and look at things objectively <laughs> and make scientific observations about them, <laughs> and then in the end, like what you know, you you have to melt that clear vision with your heart and then go back to just feeling things. And then, and, and then God descends in some Christian sense. sense. There's a, uh, I, th- I think it sounds like um, he, he is, he has been, he has received some deserved mockery for this, but Richard Dawkins made a, <laughs> I hadn't seen this when you sent it to me, uh, um, but he also on Twitter, which it just, it just seems like both of these as, as well as plenty of others are just really good arguments for not being on Twitter. Um, uh, sure, yeah. Or, or at least not 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 reflexively tweeting about things as you as they come to mind. Um, he's yeah. A, yeah. He's, <laughs> he says, Kafka's Metamorphosis is called a major work of literature. Why? If it's SF sci-fi, it's bad sci-fi. If like Animal Farm, it's an allegory, an allegory of what? Scholarly answers range from pretentious Freudian to far-fetched feminist. I don't get it. Where are the emperor's clothes? <laughs> so yeah <laughs> that is definitely one of the things recently that i've seen that uh, put me in mind of the snow essay it's you know it's a ridiculous uh a, a ridiculous thing even to wonder about for, for anybody who's taken a freshman literature course also i, I noticed dawkins is Make make sure to get in a dig at feminists for some reason. <laughs> you know, well, right, yeah. He's, he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna take down Kafka and the feminists all at once. You know. <laughs> no, and well, I mean, that's that is what's that part. That's what is odd about. It. I mean, just to for the record, Doctor Dawkins, you know, the 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 tragedy of the human condition is that we have to perceive ourselves in the first person, but you know, live out our lives in the third person. And Kafka's Metamorphosis. Uh, renders both of those realities in a single elegant and indelible figure with, you know, uh, um, memorable, uh, uh, recognizable human characters and uh, uh, 
efficient prose in a in about you know 50 to 60 pages depending on the edition so that's why it's good but um yeah. but it does seem like part of what's odd about this is that his argument has very little to do with what people respond to in literature and more to do with like he he almost is is adopting a kind of a parody of contemporary literary criticism to to mock contemporary literary criticism that he that like he seems to suggest that if in order for it to be good one would have to present an argument about like what lens it's applying or what like what theory it's adhering to um, yeah i'm not sure where he's coming from on this but I, and i should say that you you in you know in what you how you just described the metamorphosis have modeled a, a good way to approach that other culture <laughs> you know you, you gave a patient and reasoned explanation where i just came out swinging and <laughs> and and mocking the guy <laughs> but uh oh you no, don't he, I mean, deserves, course, he deserves mockery yeah yeah i mean of course there's there's a time in any you know in any student of literature's life before they do get the metamorphosis and it has been you know i guess that uh Dawkins never had that that teacher or what have you, but uh, but it, it's fascinating to me that um, and I, and I hope he's learned something from from the comments that he, that he got. But it's fascinating to me that he set out to basically debunk a classic work of literature. To, you know, yeah, the emperor's like like, <laughs> like like aha, Kafka yeah. isn't wearing any clothes. Like really, yeah. that that's the attack. That's the yeah. Because um, you just like. The simpler answer is like, because it's funny and sad. Have you read it? Right. Like you, because right. <laughs> it because it does something to you. It makes you feel something. Or or also it you know it reminds me of of sometimes you know students who are new to the study of literature it will sometimes take a very hard skeptics approach you know to sure. some, yeah, some yeah. Of literature that they don't yeah. get and and sort of uh, mock it or you know treat it as if well this is all bullshit you know this yeah, uh, yeah. rather than um, because they don't yet have the, the tools with which to uh, approach it. And uh, it, it reminded me actually of um, a very good student I once had years uh, ago, uh, who was um, an engineering major and uh, was about to uh, graduate and become an engineering grad student. Uh, and I, I was teaching um, some poem and I, I, I must have been talking uh, about Something related to negative capability, you know, or or uh, and, and or at least the way in which um, a, a good poem can can leave things fruitfully unresolved. And uh, she, this this was, um, I think she, th this probably was the first literature class she she taken in a while. And so, as this very smart student asked um, straightforwardly, what what's the point of leaving things unresolved? You know what? Mm. Why would you do that? Why would a literary work mm. do that? What you know? Why? And and I think she was coming from a a perspective uh, in in her discipline um, where you do find answers. That's that's the point, you know. And so I had to you know to to improvise a <laughs> um, an explanation of of why sometimes it is fruitful to leave things uh, ambiguous. How you know literature can can dramatize unresolved inner conflict and. Uh, the quarrel with the, the self and that kind of thing, but her, you know, her question stayed with me because I think it is a it, it is a valid uh, question, and, and it's the kind of question that I, I imagine someone like Mr. Dawkins 
might have, even though that wasn't exactly his, his question. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, that was another sort of instance from my, from my own life, from, from my own teaching where I had to um, kind of re respect and c confront the, uh, the assumptions of an another discipline, a discipline that was very different from my own and, and much more practical <laughs> and, and, it, and, and applied discipline too. You know, yeah. engineering is, is dealing with materials in the real world, not just finding answers to like metaphysical questions, but finding answers that relate to making something actually work. Yeah, I, ch I chose to leave this bridge unresolved. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not, yeah exactly. It doesn't work quite well. You might, you might, my freshman year uh, roommate in college was um, a microbiology major and uh, he's, he's now a, a medical doctor. He's a brilliant, sweet guy, but he, I, it was like the first week of school, he, I told him about the, like, I think it was, I was, going to be an English major at that point before dropping it. Um, but he said, here's my question. Why do you still read all of the old literature instead of just the, the newer literature that you know is right? Which is like such a bizarre question that it almost feels like a joke question. But it, I mean, it, like it made sense from where he was coming from. And like, you don't study the humors or parthenogenesis, like you don't study old wrong science anymore. You don't yeah. study alchemy. Uh, you study what's you, there is progress and there's not progress with literature. Yeah, I mean, that's another, right, of, of, you know, another way in which these disciplines can proceed on a very different set of assumptions. And that, yeah, that's, that's really fascinating because, you know, I, I do think, you know, you could apply that in a way, maybe this is a little bit of a stretch, but, you know, different people teach literature in different ways. And, you know, there are, um, there are teachers, critics and, uh, who sometimes narrow their focus to much more recent works, feeling that they are you know, more relevant, that they have progressed yeah. in some way beyond ancient literature or even you know, literature 50 years ago. And that, that is not you know, the way I teach that. That's not an assumption I would have as a teacher, but um, you know, it's, not, it's not totally foreign to, yeah, yeah. to our discipline, either to, to, to have the feeling that in some way art or literature progresses. Well, um, and, and there's, I mean, yeah. the other part that's true is that we, we do that by way of um, uh, selection, that there's, I mean, there's some selection is random, you know, Catullus manuscript survives because it was plugging a barrel, or, you know, that's why it, how it gets through the dark ages or something, but you, uh, the of the poems of you know 100 years ago 50 years ago 200 years ago you, you less and less of the absolute dross survives and and it has there has to be somebody has to actually like it for it to stick around um, and in some cases somebody has to make an active case for it i was talking to ryan the other day he brought up the you know john dunn and elliot that you know elliot really brought dunn back out of obscurity um uh, or, or it was some anthologist who did and then done and then Elliot wrote, wrote, wrote the metaphysical poets. Um, but yeah, the, the, there, is, there is plenty that gets deselected over time. Um, plenty of Pulitzer Prize winners that we have never heard from again. So how, how is, uh, what, are you, what, are you, um, what have you been reading and writing lately these days? I'm curious. Or I should say, are there, is there any, any, close, any last thoughts on, on this uh, that you wanted to make sure we got, got to? I think we've done snow justice. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So, so what am I what am I reading or writing lately? Um, writing. I'm coming to, to the end of a, a second collection of poems, uh, oh. finishing up a, a draft of a, of what will be someday a second uh, a second collection. Good. Con, con, congratulations. Someday is I mean, how uh, when you say a draft, what does that mean? Yeah. It means I'm still tinkering, taking a few things out, putting a few things in, uh, but getting ready to uh, start sending it out. Are you a um, respected publisher? How do you um, think of collecting? I feel like they're, they're kind of uh, two, two ma major schools of thought on poetry collections being people who believe in kind of shaping a collection either around a theme or at least around kind of loosely felt out movements. And then those who, who sort of think of a, a selection as like a personal anthology of like the best of the last X years. How does, how do you go at it? Much, much more the, the second, um, yeah. you know, you try and often uh, you're asked about the theme or have to uh, explain the, the theme for, for some kind of submission purposes. But uh, yeah, I tend to just sort of sift out the, the best of what I've written over the past X number of years. And, uh, and themes will emerge naturally because you're sure. only the one writer, you know, you have your obsessions, and <laughs> you have your, uh, your things that you, uh, th that will tie together the, the poems, whether you intended them to be tied together or not. So yeah. I, I, How about you? Which, uh, you... Oh, I, I think I'm, I'm very, very much the, the, the same. I'm, I'm always a little yeah. perplexed when I hear poets who uh, say, Oh, I've got two different collections I'm sending out. I think, well, how? How do you have two? Like, how do you? How are you sure that they're two distinct collections? Like, what? Why don't you? I, yeah. Like, is half of one better than the other half? Like, could you? Could you make it into one like really good collection or what? You know, yeah, it just seems it seems odd. Partly, I mean, partly that's just because I think the collection is so ephemeral that like assuming best case scenario, a handful of poems out of that become you know regularly read. Uh, they're going to survive on their own. They're not going to, yeah. they're going to let go of that collection like a rocket, you know, dropping its boosters. Right. Right. I, and, and I think that's maybe more true now than ever because of the way poems circulate, which tends to be, you know, on the internet if, and often through social media, which has a way of sort of excerpting things anyway. You know, and, and that said, I, I do admire like quote unquote project books a lot and yeah. hope to write one someday, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I really admire, you know, poets who can, who can really shape a collection around a, some sort of strong central premise or narrative or what have you. Well, in the last section of your, your first book is, is a longish poem. It's not a super long poem, but it's, you know, it's uh, a 10 page, not like eight or internet nine pages, but it's sort of got several movements. And, uh, um, and then you also that, you know, the, the sort of the, the motif of this uh, book, uh, if not necessarily the, the theme is, uh, um, is the Rubiat uh, Omar Kayyam, you know, that comes back again and again in form and then in these epigraphs. So, I, I imagine that if you were to write a project book, it might be a single long poem. Um, I could see you doing that. Uh, I am, again, it's one of those things where I'm fascinated to see other poets do that. And, right. you know, that the, 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 um, the different set of skills it 
it, it takes to do that, the, the ambition, the, um, you know, to, to compose something in, um, that, is that is book length, inverse, whatever it is, whether it's a, you know, a, a sequence, whether it's a verse play, you know, uh, an epic, what have you, that, you know, that uh, is something I would like to be able to do. <laughs> right, right. But, uh, but, you know, for now, I'm pretty, pretty anchored in the, in the lyric. I mean, I, I don't know if you've, if you've thought about this for your own work too, have, would you ever write a book length poem? Probably, maybe, I mean, pro probably not. I've written a verse play and I've written some, you know, dramatic monologues, but nothing terribly long. This is something I, I wonder about. You're, you're, we're about the same age, I think. I think part of my kind of uh, malaise when it comes to poetry has to do with, I mean, I, I've written criticism and plays and then poetry as well. And then in the last five years or so, I've really started writing a, a lot of fiction, but it, I guess to me, there are, I, I think a lot about if I have an impulse to write something, what form it demands. And the, you know, you can do any number of things in rhyme and verse in a shortish form, but mostly if I'm going to write that, I'm going to write a lyric. And I just find that, uh, that this period in my life lends itself a lot less to the lyric. Okay. Right. The, the lyric is like, it conveys a really sh like a poignant cutting emotion. And that's sort of, it's like a, a bullet to be delivered. And I just have emotions of that kind less now that, you know, that I, you, you, sorry, go ahead. Do, do you find, you, you find that you're um, the kinds of ideas that you're having now for poetry lend themselves to, to longer form, forms that need to be developed more, more at length than the short lyric? I don't, well, I, yeah, I don't, I just don't find, I, I mean, I have, when I have thoughts, they tend to be more big muddy movements. I mean, big, you know, or, or they, or I'm, uh, more interested in something that has a real muscular plot to it, um, or just something that that's uh, that doesn't want to be conveyed as that I think that would be that would not be as well served by poetry as it would be served by some other form that I at least have some that I can at least attempt, um, and I wonder about there was for a while a lot of moaning about how uh, the the range of contemporary poetry had shrunk and we had given up all of these things which is really just a, a matter of nomenclature it's like yeah, we, right we we don't have epic poems or you know or, or tragedy was poetry like this is we have novels we have plays we have movies we like we haven't i don't know that we've really lost these things but um but the lyric has the lyric was the Lyric and, and I guess like to some extent like a, the the monologue and the the epigram and maybe a couple other little like basically the lyric was the is the formal lineage of contemporary poetry. I don't think all contemporary poetry is lyric, but it's that's the that's sort of the the, the parental line that it comes from. And so yeah. I think that there are people. I mean, I like a lot of contemporary poetry I read is written by people who seem chiefly to write in 
who seem chiefly to write poems. Um, and so when they then have one of these sort of impulses that isn't necessarily a very lyric impulse, they fit it into this way of writing that they've, that they've gotten used to. And I think that that's, sometimes that results in muddy, unsuccessful poetry, but I think sometimes it also may be just a, a way for poetry to do something new. And it, I think for me, I just like, I've, I really enjoy the, and I'm very at, at home in the, in genre and for generic and formal distinctions. And so I, I, yeah, I feel less likely to want to write a, like there's, there's a weirdly a rise of like the free verse verse play or the free verse verse novel, which to me feels like yeah. what, what is what? <laughs> but that is, you know, but I think it, it, I understand where that comes from. It's just, I think for sure. me, I would, I would just go ahead and shift genres if that's what I was doing. That's interesting. I mean, yeah, there, there have been some, um, some free verse verse novels or, 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 you know, book length kind of project books that I've, that I've certainly enjoyed, but I, I know what you're saying. And I, I feel like maybe with my last answer, I was being uh, a little coy <laughs> because, you know, I'm, there, there is work, you know, that I'm doing that is too, you know, unfinished uh, to, sure. to, for me to want to talk about in, in right. detail, sure. but I, I do feel some of the, the impulse that, that you feel. I also feel, by the way, that um, as someone who tends to, uh, to write in um, received forms, that there have definitely been poems um, over the years and, and recently where, uh, where I set out to write a short kind of, you know, the short Jew-like, yeah, <laughs> formally yeah. perfect uh, lyric, and um, and the poem just began to sprawl, you know, and yeah. and wanted space to breathe, and uh, and became better once I took it out of a short form and let it breathe, you know, or let, let it, and sort of a rift, I guess, uh, yeah. on what the idea for two or three pages. Um, so sometimes I, I like a little a little sprawl and, and can uh, can find a, a very short lyrics intimidating. Uh, or, or, or confining or what have you. So um, I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, and, and I can I can cut this out because I can't remember if this was pseudonymous or not or how seriously pseudonymous it was, but for a while you had a, a series of poems written in this sort of uh, heteronym. That's Is right, that, yeah. Right, I mean, which I, I, I don't know how much of their, I, I remember I read a bunch of it and I'm not sure at what phase it was, but I enjoyed it. It was like very clever and funny and like Thanks. formally ingenious stuff. What what was that? What was, I, I just remembered about that. What what was all that? Yes, uh, yeah, we can talk about that. This was uh, basically a, 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 a mock epic, although even that sounds too pretentious <laughs> for what it was. It was uh, a mockery of a mock epic. Um, no, it was a, a poem that was written, a series of like dramatic monologue poems with, from, you know, the, a central character named uh, Blad J. Garamond, who That's is right. this kind of um, archetypal, uh, um, you know, almost parody of like a uh, somewhat Victorian dandy uh, or, a, you know, a, a Victorian gentleman. And, uh, and, and in fact, you know, the, the characters were named after fonts because they were all supposed to be types of one kind or another. So, you know, this, this was a, a, you know, a 
playful set of poems that did kind of grow to, to book length, but I've never been sure quite what to do with it. So it's, <laughs> it's, it has this, for me, it's sort of unofficial <laughs> work, although I did, uh, you know, toss some of those poems up uh, on a, a website I made uh, over the years. But uh, yeah, that was a fun project. And I suppose that would count as a, as a longer form or more of a... Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, certainly. They were, they were. Oh, yeah. They were interconnected. Uh, yeah. No, I'd. And they told a story. Well, yeah. What a wild. Pro is that is that still accessible? I or should, or, or should, <laughs> should I? Should I? If it is, I don't know. No, it is. The, the webs. The website uh, is still up. You can you can find it if you're of a oh. mind to. Because I mean, I, yeah. I'm gonna. I mean, my. But I, but I have taken. But I have taken some of it down just okay. because you know it. Uh, you know, I don't want uh, things to be, or, and, and also uh, left some of it unpublished to begin with, because if I ever do publish it, you know, you don't want the whole thing to be <laughs> already accessible. So. Yeah, I mean, my, my I, I'll plan to make all, put all this in show notes so we can, people can read the, the, the smart and silly things that we've, uh, we've been talking about. Is there anything that you have read in the last little stretch that you wish more people knew about or read or that you feel has been is overlooked you, you sort of if, if you can if you can reach both of my other listeners um with a recommendation <laughs> anything you want to pass along well this is not overlooked but uh i finally got around to reading uh, a classic that i think a, a lot of writers will already know but this is annie dillard's the writing life uh this oh, is I, uh, this, I don't know it it's um it's a book about the writer's craft, uh, short and um, and beautifully done. You know, there's uh, it, it. It's definitely. Uh, I had read excerpts of it over the years, but I never read the full thing. Uh, and just a, as a, as a taste of it, like the final chapter, is um, is describing uh, a stunt pilot that uh, Annie Dillard witnessed, uh, who is a sort of a, a master of his. Uh, craft and it all sort of adds up to a, a long metaphor about the writer's art, but it's um, it's also a very detailed, uh, firsthand you know account of first watching uh, this stunt pilot and then being in the airplane with the stunt pilot. And it's just a beautiful piece of writing. I mean, it's just you know it's a wonderful, um, even, uh, whether you take it literally or as a metaphor, it's just beautifully done and uh, sort of an, an an experience of the sublime. That's all right. I may have to come back to this with you because you, you were you were you you got like a real honest to god education in college, but you you um, use and have some sense of the meaning of the term sublime. You said we're thus sorry, the sublime, right? The sublime. Yeah, I was using it very loosely. I I don't know if I could. Uh, well, no, I mean I'm not asking. I'm not asking. Uh, define I, it for you, but. It was because because Brian Platzer used it in a text message to me recently, and I had a little exchange with him. And I just realized it's a weird, uh, it's a weird gap, and like that I have no, I have I have some sense of it because I've had it explained to me, but it's one of those things, maybe like the third law of thermodynamics, that just I can't hold in my brain. So I, I'm started reading Kant about it, and it's, and I still I'm like I feel like I'm going to come away from this book and be like, all right, I get what you mean by the sublime, but I've already forgotten it. I I can't give you the. I can't remember uh, uh, the anybody's exact uh, definition, including uh, Kant's. But I, I'm thinking of you know this. The, I'm thinking of the Romantics, you know, and uh, their sort of uh, encounters with with nature that left them with 
a feeling of awe that was displaced, uh, you know, from, from religion and spirituality, but was still an experience of, of awe and wonder. And this, uh, you know, this uh, chapter that I'm talking about, you know, you have a writer going up with someone in a, a, a plane, uh, a stunt pilot who's doing these stunts around a mountain, you know, so these daredevils stunts were flying at close range, <laughs> almost into the mountain and that kind of thing. So it's this, you know, this ter- beautiful yet terrifying uh, and simultaneously awe-inspiring encounter, up close and personal encounter uh, with uh, this, this wondrous natural phenomenon. So that mix, and I, I, I think for, for, you know, for the romantics, for, for Wordsworth or, or whoever, that, that mixture of beauty and terror was definitely part of the, the sublime. And you will get that from this, from this chapter. If you don't have a strong stomach, you'll, you'll feel like you're uh, doing barrel rolls with, <laughs> with Annie Diller. <laughs> this theory about doctors um, because there's a problem that I think affects doctors that doesn't affect many other kinds of professionals and I think because of the nature of their work it's especially intimate so the problem is that to be a doctor you have to know so much stuff that it's almost not plausible for you to know it. Uh, you know, just within one specialty, just within one specialty at one moment in history, I should say, because the medicine is always changing, it requires such an enormous quantity of just raw memorization as well as you know, gestalt exposure experience that it's just barely feasible for a, a human being to do it. It's one of the reasons that uh, there's been such a, a, a tug of war in the last couple decades over over uh, limiting hours during residency. This is this is something else I think most people don't quite realize. Most people tend to think that you you go to med school and then you're a doctor, and that's true insofar as you have an MD after your name, but you're not really a doctor until you go to, you know, in most cases, another four years of training after that. So you don't really go to, you know, school for four years to be a doctor. You really go to school for eight years to be a doctor. It's not school exactly, but the training is, if anything, uh, far more rigorous (laughs) during your residency than it was during medical school. Uh, And there is so much work to do and so much learning to do that uh, medical residents are you know, notoriously underslept. I, I bring all this up because the gap in knowledge of the human body, especially of a particular region of the human body, if that is your specialty, the gap in knowledge between you, if you are a doctor, and your ordinary average layperson the gap in knowledge is colossal. It's it's almost uh, beyond the ability to communicate because, of course, you had to train far more rigorously than most people train for anything, for any period of time, for this incredibly, you know, focused, intense eight-year period. 
after which you then had to continue to keep up with all of the, the latest publications in your field. So the just the, the set of working knowledge that you have is dizzying when compared to the very little that most of us know about our bodies or you know vaguely remember from freshman biology uh, that there's a you know it's understandable maybe why uh, doctors sometimes are a little brusque they're a little impatient they're uh, they can talk down to patients sometimes they can seem a little superior and this is the first half of the problem that I'm talking about now the second half of the problem is that the gap between what a very well-trained doctor knows and what it would be possible to know about even that same very limited region of the body is, if anything, even bigger. That is, to be a doctor, you have essentially taken a one square inch patch of a uh, of you know an average desk globe and you have gotten to know that patch extremely well now most people their knowledge of the globe extends no further than a pinprick so you know just dozens upon dozens of times more information than they do about uh, about anything. I mean, the, you know, the, the very tip of a pen, this is, you know, angels, uh, how many angels dance, you know, kind of territory. And you know a pretty good solid square in an extremely, you know, respectable detail. The problem is that the rest of the globe dwarfs your knowledge. And nobody knows all of that. It is not known. Uh, even you know, even if you were to compare, you, you know, even if you 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 make use of all of the other specialists in your network and uh, all of the various you know uh, new research that you've you've kept up with, even if you expand all of that and you link together all of these different uh, overlapping square inches of map, you know, you're still covering just a tiny, tiny minority of the globe. So one of the hardest things for a doctor to say is, I don't know. And yet that is almost, that is one of the most frequently appropriate answers that a doctor might have to any given uh, mysterious ailment. Because most of what there is to know is not known. But they are talking to somebody who knows just a tiny, tiny fraction of what they know. And so the result is, uh, unfortunately, a very understandable uh, air of authority in a context in which authority is literally, it is not possible to have. Uh, anybody who's ever had a difficult diagnosis has experienced some part of this. And uh, I also, I, I bring it up because uh, Amit Mashmadar, um, whom Austin and I talked about um, some this week, he is a practicing doctor, he's a radiologist, and uh, he has written a little bit about uh, medicine as well as about other 
um, areas of science. And the, the poem I'm going to read you today is one I find touching, but in a, in a sort of a strange way. It doesn't, it's, you know, there, there are no characters exactly. There's no emotion really expressed in it. It is a poem, the, the balance of which is measured in differences between knowledge and ignorance. And uh, I think there's some implied emotion, but really it's just a poem that enumerates what is known and what is unknown. And I think does that in a pretty uh, affecting and poignant way. Uh, it's from, uh, it was originally published in JAMA, which is the Journal of the American Medical Association. And it was published in Majmadar's collection uh, zero, 00. I, I don't know how to pronounce that, not because uh, it's made up of unfamiliar words, but because it's made up of unfamiliar notation. This is uh, zero, 00 marking zero uh, longitude and zero latitude. Zero degrees, comma, zero degrees. But this poem is called Patient Histories by Amit Majmadar. Some know what ails them inside and out. They know where they brushed the ivy and when. Tracing for you around their shins the border that morning between sock and skin. After resenting their past doctors by name, they ask you to spell yours and write the letters, as you say them, on a yellow pad. Medication lists, Xeroxed, one for you to keep. They know exactly at what hour of the night their pain gave a murmur or turned in its sleep. But some speak of their ill health haltingly. The first chest pressure something overheard across a room packed with more pressing events. A spouse brings the mole to their attention. When they first slurred their words is a matter of hearsay. They have no dates for you, much less a time of day. And they are always the ones who get the worst news, whose malignancies have trekked to lung and liver in the sunshine of benign neglect, whose backaches turn out to be bone mets, the ones who felt the lump, but figured it would go away. Uh, so that in the, the uh, second to last line, um, bone mets uh, is short for bone metastases, um, meaning uh, um, extensions of, uh, of a cancer that is, that is spread from one um, organ to another, uh, which is the fourth stage of cancer, of which, as Christopher Hitchens once quipped, there is no fifth stage. So uh, there's, you know, part of what I kind of like about this poem, in a, you know, in a gentler and more understated way than some of the maledictions I read a few weeks ago, is that it starts with a, it starts with one implied emotion and ends with another, but there's a distance 
because of course none of these events, trivial or tragic, actually belong to the observer. Uh, these are not the doctor's stories. These are stories the doctor is a minor character in. And, you know, the first uh, stanza, the, the poem is broken into uh, stanza of 10 lines and a stanza of 11 lines. Um, and it's uh, pretty, um, uh, there is a, an insistent but irregular rhyme without much of a scheme. And um, uh, there's, there is the um, a strong ghost of uh, ambic pentameter, but it, you know, we, they, they ask you to spell yours and write, and they are always the ones who get when they first slurred their words as a matter of hearsay. Now, the, there are a lot of lines that aren't quite that, but it's sort of, it, it hovers around that. Um, I, I think that uh, this is a poem that is um, well made, but not it is it is has not been brought to a a high polish or a very extreme stage of refinement there are some lines and sentences that end a little bit on an anticlimactic note they ask you to spell yours and write the letters as you say on a yellow pad um and it's uh you know why it's broken into into stanzas at these lengths and and why some of the lines are are built the way they are seems a little arbitrary um, but, uh, you know, for that, I, I, I don't know that I fault it because the, the haphazardness of some of it, formally speaking, um, really, I think just contributes to the, the mounting tension of the poem, which again is between what is known and what is not known. Uh, in the, the first half, uh, of course, we know too much. These are patients who are constantly pestering doctors. They have a new ailment every uh, every month, and uh, they have all of the details you need, and they have a long list of other doctors who did not take them seriously and who have since been uh, um, have spent have, have since come to um, uh, to be objects of uh, of, of deep resentment and. Um, uh, irritation. So uh, these are these are patients who are unpleasant <laughs> for a doctor to have for very petty reasons. Um, these are the patients doctors don't especially want to uh, complain about because uh, nobody really wants to hear a doctor complain, but um, but definitely would rather avoid if possible. <laughs> The, the second half, um, which again, he, you know, he distinguishes these one from the other simply with these relatively dry categories. The first uh, is made up of those who keep too close a track of their health. And the, the second group is made up of those who, um, who don't especially pay attention to their health, who have no interest in going to the doctor, who have no interest in pestering anybody, but come because something has become uh, impossible to ignore. And, you know, we start with the, the doctor's difficulty. 
right? That, you know, in the, the first half, the doctor has far more information than he needs. In the second half, um, it's very difficult to put together anything like a clear story. Um, and I find that I, I, I actually find it quite um, formally admirable of Majmadar to limit his sympathy to a, a simple acknowledgement, um, which is really, you know, the least medical, the least scientific uh, claim in the um, in the poem. And, you know, in some sense, people come to the doctor uh, when they have, when a problem has gotten too big to either, people come to the doctor either because they want to come to the doctor with something or because they, you know, a problem has become too big to ignore. So in that sense, of course, you know, the latter group is going to have bigger problems, but there is something of the, you know, the patient's uh, magical thinking about the line, uh, the lines, they are always the ones who get the worst news. There's something about this group of people who really had no intention of uh, busying the doctor, uh, troubling the doctor at all with their problems, but have been um, selected uh, in the worst way. They are always the ones who get the worst news. There's something there, I think, that kind of echoes some of the inevitable uh, sense of anxiety and even superstition that accompanies, you know, dealing with a, a difficult medical problem. If you are somebody, especially if you are somebody who doesn't possess medical knowledge, there is a sense that this is deeply unfair uh, to you. And just acknowledge, that's, all, that's about all he does. He just acknowledges that feeling. They are always the ones who get the worst news. So that there's very little resolution, there's very little expression of a feeling, but I think in its restraint, um, in its dryness, uh, I, I actually find this to be a, a very touching poem. I'm going to read it one more time and then say goodbye. This is Patient Histories by Amit Majmadar. Some know what ails them inside and out. They know where they brushed the ivy and when, tracing for you around their shins the border that morning between sock and skin. After resenting their past doctors by name, they ask you to spell yours and write the letters as you say them on a yellow pad. Medication lists, Xeroxed, one for you to keep. They know exactly at what hour of the night their pain gave a murmur or turned in its sleep. But some speak of their ill health haltingly. The first chest pressure, something overheard across a room packed with more pressing events. A spouse brings them all to their attention. When they first slurred their words is a matter of hearsay. They have no dates for you, much less a time of day. And they are always the ones who get the worst news, whose malignancies have trekked to lung and liver in the sunshine of benign neglect, whose backaches turn out to be bone mets. The ones 
who felt the lump, but figured it would go away. That was Patient Histories by Amit Majmadar, uh, and this is Slee Ricketts. Um, incidentally, uh, Dr. Majmadar, if you happen to hear this, earlier in the podcast when I said, fuck you, Amit Majmadar, what I really meant was, please come on the podcast and talk shop with me, uh, Dr. Majmadar. So um, do drop a line if you are so inclined. Uh, thank you all for listening. With any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. 